You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, America. This is Pete Mecca, your host for a veteran story on AmericasWebRadio.com. My show today is going to be a, a special program. Uh, this past Monday, December 7th, was the 79th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. And my program today is called Suddenly and Deliberately. How are you? From my studies of the history and also from feel? interviews of the men who were there at Pearl Harbor. I, I want you to listen to this story. And I kept looking President up. Franklin Roosevelt's opening sentence on December 8th, 1941, asking Congress for a declaration of war against Japan. Huh. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked a good by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. America, the sleeping giant, had violently been aroused from its isolation from World War II. The place was in the middle of the Pacific Ocean at a shallow naval, naval anchorage called Pearl Harbor. To begin this story... I first want to mention a young man named William. He was born in France, the grandson of the wealthiest man in Wisconsin and the son of a state senator. He served in the U.S. Army as a private during the Spanish-American War until his father's political influence got him a commission in the Army Signal Corps. William became a decorated World War I combat pilot and opinionated aviation visionary. He was called by his nickname, Billy, and entered the history books as General Billy Mitchell. After World War I, Billy proved the worth of air power when he led an air armada that sank the former German battleship Ostfriedland in a well-publicized demonstration. And days after, across the Pacific Ocean, Japanese House of Peers statement Katsuda was asked to comment on Billy's successful sinking of the former German battleship. Katsuda replied, and listen to this, I quote, Our people would cheer your great General Billy Mitchell, and you may be sure we will study his experiments. Should there ever be a conflict with America, she will be fighting a long way from home. It would gravely embarrass the American people if the ideas of your General Mitchell were more valued in Japan than in the United States. Billy's outspoken and aggressive criticism of antiquated military philosophies kept him in so much hot water that the old-school military pecking order considered Billy a royal pain in their old-school derrieres. So they sent Billy away from all the publicity for an inspection tour of the Far East. That was just a way to get rid of him for a while. Those old school derrieres should have known better. The press kept Billy Mitchell's name in their front page stories, and the American people absolutely loved Billy's brash military advocacy. When Billy finally came home, he published a 324-page book entitled Winged Defense, in 1925, if the truth be known, the attack on Pearl Harbor began 
1925. In the book, Billy alleged that the war in the Pacific would be initiated by the Japanese with an attack on Pearl Harbor. Clark Field in the Philippines and a siege against the island fortress of Corregidor. Billy Mitchell claimed the Japanese would attack Pearl Harbor at 7.30 in the morning. He was off by 25 minutes. They attacked at 7.55. Billy predicted that the raid on Clarkville in the Philippines would begin at 10.45. He was off less than two hours. The attack came a little bit after 12. After a failed crash of the Major Darable, that's a blimp, named the Shenandoah, outspoken Billy Mitchell accused his senior military officer of incompetence and, I quote, almost treasonable administration of national defense, unquote. Now, that was too much for the old military hierarchy. Billy Mitchell was court-martialed on eight specifications. It became the longest court-martial in history. All of the judges, of all the judges, 13 judges, none of them were pilots, none of them had ever flown. Twelve of the 13 judges found Billy guilty on all charges. One judge voted for acquittal, and he said of his orders to sit on Billy Mitchell's court-martial, and I quote, one of the most distasteful orders I ever received. That judge's name was Major General Douglas MacArthur. Billy's career was over. He would not live to see his prediction come true. He died at the age of 56 on February 19, 1936, from a bad heart and an extreme, extreme case of influenza that we can all identify with today. The B-25 Mitchell of World War II fame is the only military aircraft to ever be named after an individual. They should have listened to General Billy Mitchell. Also, another individual probably knew the Japanese better than our, nobody knew better uh, of the Japanese than our ambassador to Japan. His name was Joseph Clark Groove. He served as the ambassador to Japan from 1932 until 1941. He joined several clubs and societies in Japan and was popular in Japanese society. Grew admired the Japanese culture and became close friends with Prince Takugawa. They dined often and attended tea parties as close acquaintances. On January 27, 1941, Ambassador Grew sent a secret cable to the State Department in Washington, D.C., passed on valuable information, possibly rumors, but valuable information given to him by Peru's minister to Japan that said, and I quote, Japanese military forces are planning a surprise mass attack at Pearl Harbor in case of trouble with the United States. Grew stated in an interview in 1944 that part of his warning consisted of the warning, there is a lot of talk around town. He was talking about Tokyo to the effect that the Japanese, in case of a break with the United States, are planning to go all out in a surprise mass attack on Pearl Harbor. 
Groom's warning and report was handed to the Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Harold Stark, and the Commander-in-Chief of the U.S. Pacific Fleet, Admiral Husband Kimball. Both men, plus everyone else involved in the decision-making process in Washington and Hawaii, discounted Ambassador Groom's blunt warning. However, by late 1941, as the winds of war blew across the vast Pacific Ocean and Hitler rampaged through Europe, the Brain Trust and intelligence communities in Washington and around the free world fully understood that something was up in the Pacific. But where and when? All the suspicion, dissemination or dissemination of sketchy intelligence, the radio intercepts, second-guessing speculation, military egos vying for attention, newspaper commentaries, and conceivably politicians just being politicians, mattered little to the soldiers, airmen, and sailors who would bear the brunt of the despicable attack on Pearl Harbor. They were as retold by the men who were there, just doing their jobs. December 6th, 1941, Hamilton Field near San Francisco. A flight of 13 B-17 Flying Fortress heavy bombers take off at 15-minute intervals for a tedious 15-hour flight to Hawaii. Co-pilot, 2nd Lieutenant Roy Reed, said of the trip when I interviewed him, We were ill-tempered, to say the least. Before takeoff, ground crews had come aboard and installed uncomfortable steel plates behind our seats. With war clouds on the Pacific, Pacific horizon, it was bad enough that we were flying unarmed and with hardly enough fuel to get there. But with steel plates attached to our seats, we were cranky the entire flight. The steel plate behind Reed's co-pilot seat would save his life 15 hours later. On the same day, December 6th, five large Japanese submarines came within 10 nautical miles of the mouth of Pearl Harbor. And from there, all five Japanese submarines launched a midget submarine at approximately 1 o'clock in the morning on December 7th. About two and a half hours later, an American minesweeper, the USS Condor, spotted a midget submarine periscope southwest of the Pearl Harbor entrance buoy. The Condor alerted the destroyer USS Ward. The first midget sub is believed to have entered the harbor. But a second midget sub was attacked and sunk by the USS Ward at 7.37 in the morning, more than two hours before the Japanese attacked. The reports of an American destroyer having sunk an enemy submarine at the harbor entrance did not reach the higher echelons until after the bombs were dropped and torpedoes slammed into American warships.
and high above the harbor before the attack even started. A lone Japanese reconnaissance float plane launched from the Japanese destroyer Tan observed U.S. naval activity from a high altitude. And she was there for a long time and never spotted. The float plane reported back, back to the Japanese armada north of Hawaii that the sleeping giant was still resting peacefully. There's nothing unusual going on. Skies were clear, beautiful blue azure morning, and the Japanese were preparing to bring hell to Pearl Harbor. Folks, we're going to our first break. I'll be back in a couple minutes. Stay with me. And as Pete might have suspected, our first break is, in fact, our breaks are going to be about something we've started new here. And but a lot of reasons, and this is the season for it as well, but we've started the J. Roy Ritchie Memorial Veterans Prayer, or Prayers for Veterans, I should say. And we want every veteran that's listening and our civilian, whether you served or not, you can certainly still pray for our veterans and we're asking people to send in names of, or it can be themselves, a veteran that needs prayer. And it can be about anything from finance to health, anything that you need prayer about. We're going to see that your brother and sisters in arms, your fellow that know where you've been, been there, done that, they're going to be praying for you. And if you are a veteran in need prayer or you're a friend or a family member, whatever the situation is, just go to America's Web Radio, Prayers for Veterans, click on that, and send us the name that you would like mentioned. Right now, we've got a couple in. We've got a third one that's uh, come in, and we just started this a day ago. So we ask that everyone pray, and particularly our fellow veterans pray for Colonel Liston Edge, and he's retired, obviously, but uh, just suffering from bad health and uh, need your prayers, as well as E-5 Philip Calhoun was in the Air Force. By the way, uh, Colonel Edge was uh, in the Army, and... Uh, List, uh, I'm sorry, Philip Calhoun was in the Air Force, and he's suffering from effects of Agent Orange. And this is all about what Agent Orange did to my friend, J. Roy Ritchie, as it caused cancer, and J. Roy died a couple of weeks ago now. So we ask that everybody join us. Join America's Web Radio. Go to our homepage. Look around. If you'd like to become a patron, we'd love to have you as a patron. And uh, then look at what we're doing for veterans and what we want to do for veterans. And there is no question the power of prayer. And any veteran that has been in combat, I can almost guarantee you knows the power of prayer. So with that being said, you're listening to America's Web Radio, a veteran story with Pete Mecca, and he is fantastic, and I'm lo- I've always loved the Pearl Harbor story and our ability to come back, and that's the ability of all veterans. 
is the ability to fight and come back. And that's, and prayers help. So please join us in praying for our veterans and our first responders, our enlisted folks, our, our folks that are active duty and our veterans. So back to. All right, thank you, David. Folks, our higher-ups in our military, they had received warnings from uh, our ambassador to Japan about Pearl Harbor. They disregarded Billy Mitchell's prediction. The war sank a, a Japanese submarine at the mouth of Pearl Harbor, and that didn't get to our, our higher-ups until after the bombs dropped. And here's another case of just unbelievable uh, 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 misery by, by the Americans. High up on Opana Point, U.S. Army Privates Joseph Lockhart and George Elliott observed a big target approaching via the scope on their newfangled SCR-270 radar machine. They reported the sighting to a newly assigned officer at the Intercept Center, uh, Lieutenant Kermit Tyler. Lieutenant Tyler presumed the target was Roy Reed's B-17s flight in from the West Coast and told the young privates to forget about it. As 177 Japanese warplanes in the first wave continued on to Pearl Harbor. Now, not often remembered is the fact that the first wave of Japanese warplanes encountered, then shot down several U.S. aircraft. And at least one of those aircraft had radioed in a somewhat incoherent warning to Pearl Harbor. It was basically ignored. There were other warnings from ships off the harbor entrance, and those warnings were still being processed and are awaiting confirmation or further orders as any bomber, as enemy bombs started to fall, torpedoes sliced through the harbor waters, and their deadly strafing began. Jesus Prado Cepeda was born a Chamorro. Those are the natives born on the island of Guam. He was born in 1921 and witnessed the war as few men did. From the attack on Pearl Harbor to being on the deck of USS Pasadena, less than 100 yards from the Japanese surrender in Tokyo Bay on September 2nd, 1945. But he recalled the day of infamy, December 7th, 1941. I was assigned to the USS Honolulu as the Admiral's steward. I was up early getting ready to attend Catholic church services on the mainland when the roar of hundreds of airplanes caught my attention. Up on the deck, the gangway officer and I saw wave after wave of planes coming in from the north. Some of the planes got lower, but other planes kept their altitude. Then came the attack. Jesus said, Soon the lower aircraft released torpedoes from about 30 feet off the water. Then we heard huge explosions. The duty officer ran to the intercom and yelled into it, This is not a drill. This is not a drill. Man your battle stations. 
all the hatches were immediately shut, and the ship was locked down watertight. I could not reach my battle station below deck, sending ammo and shells up to the gun crews. So instead, I had a front row seat under the staircase to the bridge to witness the attack on Pearl Harbor. And he talked about the USS Arizona. Jesus said there was fire and smoke everywhere. Then we heard a tremendous explosion. The battleship USS Arizona lifted itself out of the water in its death throes. I'll never forget that sight. Folks, of her 1,512-member crew, 1,177 perished. He said, I had never been in combat before, never saw or heard so many guns going off. A bomb exploded on the pier next to us. I figured I was dead, but eventually made it down to my battle station. But as soon as I got there, the Admiral called and told me to report back up on deck to be on standby for whatever he needed. He said, you know, they laid the blame on Admiral Kimball and the Army General Short, but it wasn't their fault. We had no warning, and I believe someone somewhere actually knew the Japanese were coming, and that's still debated to this day. Now, as that was going on, young 2nd Lieutenant Roy Reed was behind the controls of his B-17 coming in from California. He was on a long base leg approach to Hickam Field when he spotted black smoke churning above the harbor. He recalled, It was 8 o'clock in the morning, a beautiful morning. But I asked the pilot about all the smoke because he'd been to Pearl Harbor once before. He said the pilot responded, Oh, don't worry about that. That's just local natives burning off sugarcane. And Roy Reed said, and I'm sitting there thinking, how in the hell do you grow sugarcane on top of water? About that time, two Japanese zeros got on our tail and opened up. There we were, unarmed and out of fuel. Tracers reeled our B-17 and ignited the flares behind our seats. We had no choice. We had to land as flames licked the back of our seats. Of those 13 B-17s come in from the West Coast, they all did make it down, but some of them landed on golf courses. They landed anywhere they could. Uh, the fact that we didn't lose any B-17s uh, was incredible, but war reeds did get damaged and destroyed. I'll tell you that story. Reed said, I lowered the landing gear as we approached for, for a, a real critical landing. The wheels locked just as we touched down. The pilot and I fought with the controls to keep the bomber from running off the runway as thick smoke filled the cockpit. She touched down, bounced, the tail hit, the plane buckled, collapsed, and broke in the middle in two distinct pieces as she rode to a stop. We leaped from the plane and started running for cover. Our flight surgeon, First Lieutenant William Schick, was killed by a straving Japanese airplane. The Jap pilot was so low 
that his propeller blades cut into the runway. He crashed and burned. War Reed and his crew made it to a hangar, and they found an old Army sergeant passing out guns and ammunition. They ran over, grabbed automatic forty fives and any kind of weapon they could, some ammunition, and started running out the, the hangar door. And the sergeant yelled at him, Hey, come back here. you got a sign for those. Rory said, Well, we shouted back at him. Well, you can't print what we shouted back at that sergeant. Roy Reed stayed on the island for a while. He helped as much as he could. But he said, I, I had seen tragedy before, but watching those boys and sailors going to the hospitals with horrible burns, missing limbs and everything else, it was too much. He said, I sat down on the steps of the hospital and, and, and cried. He said, I, I just had never seen anything like that. War Reed became uh, his own commander of a B-25, I'm sorry, B-17, flew on to the Pacific and the Philippines and flew 50 reconnaissance missions. One time got bushwhacked by a flight of Zeros. His, he thought it was dead. They thought they were going to be shot down. He said there were Zeros everywhere. His gunners came through for him. They shot down three or four Japanese Zeros, and the other ones skedaddled for home. Rory said, God must have been on my side that day. Bob Kerr enlisted in the Army. Oh, by the way, when Reed went back to his B-17 the next day so they could get intelligence books out, their log books out, things like that, that's when he discovered that his back seat was riddled with enemy machine gun bullets. That uncomfortable steel plate behind his seat had saved his life. Bob Kerr enlisted in the Army in 1940 after graduation from high school. On the morning of December 7, 1941, he and a buddy were in Schofield Barracks dressing for church service when a familiar voice caught their attention, the roar of airplane engines. His buddy said, man, those Navy boys are out early practicing this morning. Then someone yelled, hell, those are Japs. All the wind strings in the barracks were certainly shredded by striking Japanese zero fire. Curry called a sprinted outside and stood on a small porch for a few seconds. The squadron cook and another soldier were on the ground in front of me, both dead. I realized the squadron roster would eventually be needed, so I ran inside to retrieve it from a safe. The first sergeant appeared in the doorway and asked what I was doing. I answered him that I'm getting the roster out so we can take a roll call after this over. You know, it, 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 we're going to have casualties. And the first sergeant said, Kerr, that's a great idea. And then the sergeant was killed instantly by stretching machine gun bullets from Japanese planes. Kerr stuffed the roster into his jacket and spread it outside. He appropriated an abandoned army truck and began an all-day job of transporting wounded personnel to a nearby hospital. He said, I'd never driven a straight shift before. But on that day, we did what we had to do. At the hospital, Kerr noticed a nurse standing outside directing the casualties. Right. He said, she sent slightly wounded men one way 
the seriously wounded men another way. We just stacked up the dead. I mean, we didn't know what else to do. Bob Kerr saved a lot of lives during and after the attack. Break. He, he, uh, he said, I, I ran. Okay, I will be right back. we got to take a break, folks. Be back in just a couple minutes. Stand by. And we want to remind everybody again, we're going to keep uh, hounding you on this and telling you about it. And we want folks, veterans, to volunteer to pray for other veterans. It's like veteran to veteran. And no one better can pray for a veteran in need than another veteran that has been there, done that, and knows what's going on. And so we're soliciting all veterans that are listening from any war it doesn't matter from any time it doesn't matter but you are a veteran and there are a lot of brothers and sisters out there that need your prayers and we need to start today as a matter of fact and please if you're listening to this and it doesn't matter whether you're listening live today or you're listening tomorrow on the podcast or two weeks from now the point of the story is the same go to america's web radio prayers for veterans up at the top just click on that and that'll take you to a form that you can fill out and ask for prayers for a family member a friend or whatever that was a veteran or is a veteran and uh let us know and we will mention them on our next show about veterans and what's going on. By the way, uh, Pete is doing just a fantastic job today. Uh, I've always loved the history of Pearl Harbor. I've been uh, blessed that I've been able to go to Hawaii a couple of times and and uh, share thoughts and prayers while I was there. And that it's one of these places that you can't be anything but humble when you go there and, and even today see where the Arizona was and so forth. And uh, the one thing that broke my heart when I was there, as I have a son that's in the Air Force, and he took us to uh, his uh, air base, and uh, there was plane after plane after plane lined up that were being cannibalized because at the time during the Obama administration, we didn't spend enough money to keep our own jets flying. And that's that was an atrocity, and we can't let that happen again. So my last point before we get back to Pete is go out and vote. You've got to vote. We can't let the Democrats have a three-branch seniority on us. Go out this January and vote. Let the people know where you're standing. With that being said, I'm going to get off, and we'll go back to Pete. It's all yours, Pete. Uh, thank you, David. We're talking about Bob Kerr. He was uh, in administration in the Army at Pearl Harbor. Uh, he had uh, basically stolen an Army truck. He transported three or four loads of wounded sailors and dying sailors to the uh, hospital, and he saw a nurse and met her that was taking care of the wounded, marking them uh, either to be treated or not to be treated. Bob Kerr went back to Hawaii for the 50th anniversary of Pearl Harbor. He told me, well, guess what? I ran into that same nurse. And he said, she told me teasingly 
that during the raid on Pearl Harbor, I had driven the most disorganized ambulance she had ever seen. He said we had a good laugh and everything, but nobody laughed on December 7th, 1941. On December 1st, 1941, Ensign Fred Johnson was transferred to the USS Maryland as part of rebuilding the crew and staff. His sleeping facility was the one was the 20-millimeter ammo storage room. After a night on the town in Honolulu, he crawled into his bunk at 4 o'clock in the morning on December 7, 1941. He recalled, I was sound asleep when a voice blared over the loudspeaker, all hands, man your battle stations. This is no, you can fill in that word. Johnson sprinted to his battle station on the Admiral's Bridge and witnessed Pearl Harbor as few men did. He recalled, they were dropping bombs and torpedoes. Except for the smoke, it was a beautiful, clear blue sky. But for a moment, I thought it was raining because there were thousands of raindrops on the water. Those, those raindrops were actually 7.7 millimeter machine gun and 20-millimeter cannon fire from the strafing Japanese aircraft. Johnson continued, Even after the torpedo bombers dropped their torpedoes, they kept firing their machine guns. I saw the Oklahoma take three torpedoes almost immediately and begin to capsize. We were tied up with the Oklahoma, so we cut the lines so we would have would not be pulled over as she capsized. As she rode over, two more torpedoes struck her. He said it was sickening. The oil on top of the water started burning. It was a death trap. The good swimmers could dive under the oil and make it to safety. But the bad swimmers, well, we watched those guys surface in the oil. They ignited like matchsticks. Several of the crew members from the luckless Oklahoma clambered aboard the Maryland, and uh, they manned machine guns to continue the fight. Others went down with the Oklahoma. The three Barber brothers, Leroy, Randolph, and Malcolm, they joined the U.S. Navy together, and they perished together aboard the USS Oklahoma. Catholic Father Schmidt died, too, the first American chaplain of any faith to die in World War II. The trapped sailors inside the U.S. Oklahoma banged on the upturned hurl for days in desperation. Nothing could be done. The Maryland managed to bring all guns into the fight. Hit by two armored piercing bombs, she never stopped firing, scoring hits on several attacking aircraft. Johnson's previous ship, the USS West Virginia, was hit by a 1,000-pound bomb where Johnson's duty station would have been. He said, I wouldn't have made it out. By that evening, things had settled down except for occasional clatter of trigger-happy sentries and our nervous anti-aircraft gunners who just about fired at anything 
on the night of December 7th. Johnson was told to get some rest. He recalled, so I found an unfamiliar bunk and fell asleep. A short time later, I woke to see a loaded 45 caliber automatic aimed at my face. Apparently, a work party had come aboard to check out damage, but one of the workers came up missing. Considering all that happened that day, everybody thought an enemy saboteur was roaming the ship. You see, I was a new guy on the ship, and nobody knew me. So they're thinking I'm a saboteur. It was a little scary until I proved my rank, serial number, number, loyalty, and American heritage. I think a lot of people also forget we took a lot of civilian casualties at Pearl Harbor. Well, the people on the mainland, they were hit by Japanese bombs. They were hit by strafing Japanese shells. But also the shells fired by our ships. If they didn't find a target, they had to come down somewhere. And a lot of our own shells hit Honolulu and the surrounding area. December 7, 1941, aboard the battleship USS California. The time, 7.55 a.m. Wayne Shellnut was nursing a hot cup of coffee after breakfast when someone screamed, What is that airplane doing up there? Wayne walked a few steps to the door and looked up. A plane with a big red ball painted on the fuselage passed over the California then dropped a bomb on Ford Island. General Quarters sounded. Startled sailors ran to their battle stations. Aboard the USS California, 100 crew members would die. 62 others would be severely injured. Wayne Shellnut joined the Government Civilian Conservation Conservation Corps in 1933, right after he graduated from high school. Um, he said, shoot, I thought that was a great way to get away from home, and, and it was a job. There weren't any jobs available during the Depression. Well, his job took him 20 miles from his hometown. He was a little disappointed. Wayne worked for a year with the uh, Civilian Conservation Corps until he saw some bro- brochures plugging the Army and Navy. And he said, well, I decided to join. My family told me to join the Navy so I'd have a clean place to sleep and three square meals a day. The year was 1934. He said about basic training. Well, it wasn't too bad. We learned marching, discipline, Navy way of doing things. We fired weapons at the end of the train. Six rounds at 100 yards, six more rounds, 600 yards. Rough troubled me most with the blazing stun. I stayed blistered. If someone touched my blistered nose, they ran into trouble. After basic, Wayne packed his hammock and sea bag, boarded a tanker to Long Beach, another ship to San Francisco Bay, then went aboard a cruiser destined for Puget Sound. Well, Hersey said, we hit big sea swells up and down, up and down, up and down. He said, that was my first taste of seasickness. They put me on lifeboat watch. I didn't know what the heck that was. At Puget Sound, the USS California, 
awaited Wayne. The USS California battleship would be his home for the next seven years. He was assigned to the 5th Division as a gun crew member of a 5-inch 51 caliber broadside gun. They practiced almost daily loading a 50-pound projectile into the breech, then shoving bags of gunpowder. A tug, usually about three or four more miles out, pulled their target. His other duties were were common for sailors, cleaning and maintaining the ship. And within seven years, the California participated exercises up and down the West Coast, visited Hawaii, went through the Panama Canal to Cuba and to New York for the 1939 World's Fair. As relations with Japan deteriorated, the California was assigned to Pearl Harbor in May of 1940. Leading up to the day of infamy and Wayne's own words. We've been out to sea many times before Pearl Harbor on exercises, but on December 5th, 1941, we were heading back to port when someone claimed they saw a submarine. We stayed out all night looking for the sub, but we didn't see one, so we returned to port on the morning of the 6th, a Saturday. We tied up along alone at Fox Berth 1. The battleships moored behind us were the Tennessee and West Virginia, then the Arizona and repair ship Vestal, then the Nevada. The Pennsylvania was in dry dock. We opened all the hatches and the double bottoms for the Admiral's inspection on Monday, which meant our watertight integrity was completely compromised. The next morning, when the Japanese struck, I was sipping coffee. After sounding general quarters, we did what we were trained to do, man our battle station. Problem was, the ammo for our five-inch and the anti-aircraft ammunition had been stored below deck due to the upcoming inspection Monday morning. So we were at our duty station with no ammo and watching a nightmare unfold. The gun captain in the conning tower called down and ordered my gun crew to go below deck and retrieve ammo. I kept watch. Every man in my crew was below deck when the torpedo hit. Folks, we're going to our next break, and we'll be back with the story of the USS California and that first blow when the torpedo struck the ship. We'll be right back. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Folks, once again, when you go to our homepage on our website, americaswebradio.com, I would encourage you to 
become a patron of America's Web Radio. It obviously costs money to keep us on the air and, you know, and keep the great shows like A Veteran's Story and Doctor's Lounge and many other shows that are designed to bring comfort, memories, comfort, and for you and particularly our veteran shows. And we ask also that you look at uh, the J. Roy Ritchie Memorial Pray for Veterans. It's so important. Uh, it means so much. Please sign up. And if you're a veteran or you have someone that you know that's a veteran that needs prayer, please let us know and we'll see that their name is mentioned on the next show and that veterans from around the world will be and will start praying for him. And if you're a veteran, we'd ask that, again, uh, sign up, become a patron, but also that uh, if you'd like to get a list of names to pray for, we'll be sending those out. And if you join or you come in as a patron, we will give you a constitution, a small constitution, pocket constitution, plus a laminated uh, America's Web Radio patron card. And uh, it'll be amazing. We may extend that into Press Pass, where it'll be amazing the things that uh, that little press card can get you. So with that in mind, we, uh, we, we, we appreciate you listening. We appreciate our hosts like Pete for doing such a wonderful job. This story today is, is fantastic. Pete, you've done your homework without a doubt. You always do. And you always have great guests on as well. So anyway, let's keep our veterans in mind praying for them. And a veteran praying for a veteran is the finest thing in the world. So with that being said, back to Pete and a veteran's story. Uh, thank you, David. Appreciate those kind words too. We were talking about Wayne Shellnut. He was at his five-inch gun station, and he was keeping watch, watching the horrors of Pearl Harbor, actually, as his crew went below to get ammunition. And he said that's when the torpedo hit. Well, actually, folks, there are two torpedoes detonated below the ship's armor belt, and one uh, 551-pound bomb hit the starboard upper deck, passed through the main deck, and detonated on the armored second deck and those explosions set off uh, the anti-aircraft magazine intense heat and smoke ended all the pumping operations to keep the ship afloat after three days of continued flooding the california settled into muddy waters uh, at the bottom of pearl harbor only her superstructure remained above water but anyway uh, wayne continued his story he said my entire crew died below deck I was the only survivor in my gun gun crew another projector near miss ruptured the California's bow plates he said that near miss bomb almost got me he said a huge wall of water came up and covered me I was hiding behind a bulkhead but everything else in the vicinity was washed overboard now meanwhile the gun captain at Counting Tower witnessed the horrific event that we all read about and know about. And this is how Wayne described it. We all heard the gun captain say, Oh my God, a bomb just went down the Arizona smokestack. Wayne said, We didn't see it, but we sure heard it. At about 
8.06 a.m., the last bomb to hit the Arizona ripped through her deck by gun turret number two. It wasn't the smokestack. Then detonated in or near the Amazine, the ammo magazine. The explosion lifted Arizona's 32,000 tons out of the water before she settled to the bottom. Only 335 men from a crew of 1,512 survived. And today, folks, there's only two surviving members left alive of the USS Arizona. And the horrors continued. Wayne said, the Oklahoma was moored behind us. I didn't see the ship capsized, but later we plainly heard the sailors trapped inside, banging with hammers against the upturned hull, hoping to be rescued. Most of those boys didn't make it out. Wayne paused for a moment, I guess just to take a break from the, the memories. Then he said, you know, during all this time, I was still at my gun station. We didn't know what to do. I saved a few men, but we were all confused, and I was alone. People started showing up, but someone said, abandoned ship. Well, we did. But once on land, we ordered back on ship to help secure heaving lines and anchor chains around the ship to keep her from capsizing. I couldn't tell you when the first wave of Japanese planes stopped their attack and the second wave began their attack. It was a blur. Total chaos. That evening, hundreds of sailors and Marines and Army personnel lined up for chow and bombed out airplane hangar on Ford Island. He said we slept on the ground that night. The next morning we searched for the missing. I conducted a roll call. Several never showed up, never answered. So many young boys lost. On the third day, I was issued a rifle and bayonet assigned to anti-aircraft guns just outside the base and I slept in a tent for the next six months. The California was eventually refloated and fought another day. Wayne, later in the war, was assigned to the USS Garibaldi. Yes, it's Italian like me, the USS Garibaldi. It was the uh, named after the first Italian-American admiral in the U.S. Navy, Bancroft Garibaldi. During his time on that destroyer, he fought in the Mediterranean aboard that destroyer. They got in a shootout with uh, other uh, German troops and and, uh, uh, airplanes. They suffered 11 near misses. In August of uh, 43, they engaged three German vessels at a range of about 4,000 yards. His destroyer and a couple other stories sank two enemy vessels, but the bigger enemy vessel just disappeared. It was loaded down with landmines. There wasn't nothing left of that ship. On D-Day, June 6, 1944, Wayne's destroyer ran out of ammunition, firing at German targets along Omaha Beach. 
went back to England, got more ammunition, and went back and fired again until all their ammunition ran out. He was sent out to the Pacific to fight that war. Swept for minefields, for mines. Uh, fought off germ, I mean, uh, uh, the kamikaze planes. He certainly did his part to, to win the war, folks. And all the Pearl Harbor survivors did the same. They went on to serve, most of them did, for the entire war unless they were wounded. Wayne served 20 years in the military. And then he hawked a little real estate. Great guy. I interviewed him when he was 100 years old. I asked him for his final thoughts about Pearl Harbor. He just smiled. He said, well, at 100 years old, it's hard to come up with one thought, much less several. He said, sometimes I can't remember what I had for breakfast. But he also said with a smile, I'm just glad to be here. (laughs) And I'm sure he was. Folks, as the year 2020 began, and what a year it's been, as this year began, there were less than 20 Pearl Harbor survivors that are still with us. Soon, there will be none. All of the Pearl Harbor survivors that I've interviewed are gone. All of the survivors I met and talked to over the years, but they would not agree to tell their stories, they're gone too. And it's sad because with them goes their stories. I keep telling veterans, if you have been in the military, at least tell your family your story. You don't You don't have to get into to morbid details. <clears throat> tell them where you were, what branch you were in, what unit you were with, and your five-year-old grandson or granddaughter get on the computer and find out what you did. But get your story out there. Tell your story. All veterans have a story. You know, folks, as a writer and also a political scientist, I have no faith that the revisionists that will rewrite our history, I don't have faith they're going to rewrite the facts. I think, rather, they're going to purge the truth and claim the Japanese were only responding to systemic racism in America. Worse yet, that Adolf Hitler was a misunderstood visionary. The way it's going these days, our history is being, well, warped. And as we lose these veterans from World War II, followed by the Korean veterans, and then the Vietnam veterans. That's why I say get your story out there. There has to be something to counter all the revisionists that will rewrite our history, and we are seeing that more and more every day. If you don't know history, it will repeat itself, ladies and gentlemen. I know David mentioned the parked airplanes, the jet fighters that we had to cannibalize during the Obama administration. Well, that was Obama's choice. But I have talked to many airmen and sailors and Marines uh, and grunts about that time, and it was tough on them. They didn't have the weapons to defend this country. They didn't have the 
Air Force to intercept any nation that wanted to come bomb us or anything like that. We need a strong military. Believe me, folks, there could be another Pearl Harbor, and we don't want to see that. But this time, this time, you're talking about weapons that, that go far beyond what the Japanese had when they attacked Pearl Harbor. I want to mention this, too. The man who planned the Pearl Harbor attack, it was his brainchild, was uh, Japanese Admiral Yamamoto. Now, he had been trained and studied in the United States. When he was told, uh, when he told his superiors about his plan to attack Pearl Harbor, he said that would at least give us six months to run helter-skelter all over the Pacific until America's industrial strength and might catches up with us. Then after that, I promise nothing. And his higher-ups asked him, well, do you plan to invade America, their west coast, after you bomb Pearl Harbor? He said, I have no intention of invading America. There will be a gun behind every blade of grass. And he's right, folks. Thank God for our Second Amendment, the right to, to keep and bear arms. Uh, that's another thing that uh, on the chopping block these days, I'm very fearful for our country and what's going to happen in the, in the coming years. There's even talk of getting rid of our Constitution and rewriting it. Think of the audacity and arrogance behind people who think they can do better than the United States Constitution or to deprive us of the Bill of Rights thinking that needs to be rewritten for their benefit and for their way of thinking. God bless the Pearl Harbor survivors. God bless the boys that are still there. And there's a young man called Willis that went down with the USS Arizona. He is my half-sister's cousin. He went down with the ship. Join me next week, folks. Thank you for joining me today. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.